0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris DeGeney at Internet Radio. Today is Friday, October 30th, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening we are going to present part 13 of our commentary on the wisdom of Solomon. This is titled, The Beauty of Wisdom. I don't believe it's 13 parts already, and... Even after tonight, we won't be halfway through wisdom. This series is taking a lot longer than I anticipated, even with the fact that the presentations are about 20 to 30 minutes shorter than my usual presentations, because these presentations are taking that much longer proportionately to prepare. That's just the nature of the material, I believe. I don't have any other excuse. Making these presentations on the wisdom of Solomon, we have already presented more than a few arguments in support of our profession that Solomon was indeed the author of this work. However, in some of those arguments, it might appear as if we claim that wisdom was originally written in Greek, and that is not necessarily true. In earlier portions of this commentary, namely in part two, where we had addressed many criticisms of the work, several times we made references to the author or translator of the work. We will not lay claim to know with certainty what was the original language of wisdom, as there is no evidence. But if the original language was indeed Hebrew, it cannot be proven conclusively that the work was not translated by a learned scribe at a time much later than Solomon's own. Simply because the Jews don't have a copy of something doesn't mean that it's not canon. If we rely on Jews at all, for our understanding of Christianity, we have already committed a grave error. At the end of Wisdom chapter 6, Solomon had promised to disclose the origin of wisdom, which he then did here in chapter 7. However, first he exhorted his intended readers, who were primarily the future kings of the children of Israel, as to why they should listen to his instruction. Doing that, he then described wisdom as emanating from God and began to describe her virtues, depicting wisdom as a woman to be adored for her beauty. Now here, at the end of Wisdom chapter 7, Solomon will continue to profess that the wisdom of which he speaks is indeed the wisdom of God and continues with an anthropomorphism. Humanizing a concept or a non-human entity is called an anthropomorphism. He continues with an anthropomorphism describing the beauty of wisdom. Before we commence, we shall repeat the verses with which we had left off in our last presentation, which seems to be customary for this particular commentary. For wisdom is more moving than an emotion. She passes and goes through all things by reason of her pureness. That first, the last couple of words in that First verse, verse 24 of Wisdom, chapter 7. I understand they may have been understood as I read them. Wisdom is more moving than any motion. It sort of sounded to me after I read it that wisdom is more moving than an emotion, but that's not what it says. Wisdom is more moving than any motion. And back to verse 25, or on to verse 25. For she is the breath of the power of God, and a pure influence flowing from the glory of the Almighty. As I said, Solomon professed that wisdom, true wisdom, emanates from God, the wisdom of which he speaks, and he never speaks of any other wisdom. There's a huge difference between the wisdom which flows from God and the wisdom which comes from man, which is vanity and sophistry. So Solomon says, therefore can no defiled thing fall into her, for she is the brightness of the everlasting light, the unspotted mirror of the power of God, and the image of his goodness even earlier in this chapter in verse 22 solomon had considered wisdom to be an intellectual holy spirit and here he describes wisdom as the image of the goodness of god but we need not interpret this in a manner which confuses solomon's description of wisdom as a woman with the Holy Spirit in the sense in which Christ himself had later used the term to describe his own ethereal presence, both in the world and within his people. In John chapter 14, for instance, Christ had promised his disciples a comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, as the King James has it, the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. And in that same chapter, he had also promised them that I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Therefore, he must be that same comforter. Even if he did not explain that to them, Explicitly. Rather, Solomon describes the wisdom of God as a creature from God and uses poetic license to depict that otherwise sexless creature as a woman who has many noble and beautiful virtues, so that he may convey an important message, which is that just as a man is attracted to a woman for her beauty, he should be attracted to wisdom because wisdom should be valued far beyond mere beauty. A young man would naturally treasure and pursue a beautiful woman, and therefore he should treasure and pursue wisdom in that same manner. As a digression, there are many feminists today, who use or who abuse Solomon's poetic device, found here and in the Proverbs, compounding them with the later and impious pagan Greek concept of Sophia as a goddess of wisdom, and they use it in ways which perhaps even Solomon may not have imagined to support their own feminist agendas. In spite of Christ, they continue to imagine wisdom as an actual feminine entity or characteristic so that they may pretend to have some sort of natural, God-given advantage over men. These women are not Christians even when they claim to be, and instead they are actually idolaters who despise the patriarchal order ordained by Yahweh God and therefore seek to form a God in their own image. While to Solomon the personification of wisdom was a rhetorical device perhaps a thousand years before Christ, the man— Yahshua Christ is the word of Yahweh God made flesh. And therefore, he is the actual incarnation of the wisdom of God. Therefore, evoking the language of this very passage of wisdom, which we've just read, and possibly having having been inspired by it, Paul of Tarsus described Christ in Hebrews chapter 1, and referring to him, he wrote, who being the brightness of his glory, the brightness of the glory of God, and the express image of his person, language which we've just seen here in Wisdom chapter 7, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Supposedly, Christian women who would cling to Solomon's rhetorical Sophia while ignoring the true incarnation of the wisdom of God in Christ shall all ultimately be shamed. Now, commencing with the closing verses of Wisdom chapter 7, Solomon continues his description of wisdom in the same manner as he had begun earlier. We're commencing with, Wisdom chapter 7, verse 27. And being but one, meaning that wisdom and God are really, really one. She can do all things. And remaining in herself, she makes all things new. And in all ages, entering into holy souls. That's an interesting phrase. She makes them and she doesn't really make them, but that's the, the way the King James Version translated it, she makes them friends of God and prophets. First, the Greek word, or the Greek phrase, I'm sorry, translated in all ages is katageneus, which would be better translated throughout generations. But we have further differences with this passage where we would translate the final clause to read, and throughout generations, passing into holy souls, or that could be translated as holy lives, she prepares them as friends of God and prophets. She, being the wisdom of God, personified, among the gifts of the Spirit, Paul had included both wisdom and knowledge, where he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man, every man of the lost sheep of the house of Israel, or the race of Adam even, for whom Yahweh God had come. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to no one is given by the Spirit the word of I'm sorry, I screwed it up already. For to one, meaning one individual, is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom. To another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. In this passage from Wisdom, the Greek word translated as make, katoskiwazo, a verb, is more precisely to equip, arrange, or prepare. Mere wisdom does not make one a prophet, which comes only by the inspiration of Yahweh God. But the ancient prophets had their own schools where it is evident that seeking the wisdom of God a man became prepared in the event that God called him to be a prophet. Among the biblical prophets, there were a few apparent exceptions, such as Amos, who didn't attend those schools. He was a shepherd and a gatherer of fruit, as he himself states in Amos chapter 7. I'm no prophet. I didn't ask for this job. I'm a shepherd and a gatherer of fruit. Once again in this passage the word for holy is hosius which describes something which has been sanctioned by god the word for soul suke as opposed to numa or spirit refers to what we may call a life here the phrase stands in contrast to those defiled things which can have no part with wisdom, mentioned in verse 25. So evidently Solomon professed that there are lives which are sanctioned by God, and into them the wisdom of God may enter, whereby those particular individuals may in turn become friends or prophets of God. Well, we have translated the phrase "idukahina kahina poyo panta into English as behold, I shall make all new things, where the King James Version has behold, I am making all things new. Here, the language is actually more explicit and the phrase "tapanta panta kahina Kahinidzi, or kahinizai, kahinizai, I'm sure, referring to a woman, can only mean she makes all things new. The verb kahinizo meaning to make new, speaking of all things in this instance. In any event, the statement is similar enough in meaning to evoke and foreshadow the words of Christ in the Revelation where he had promised to make all things new, or, as we have it, to make all new things. We understand that passage in the Revelation as a promise to restore the twelve tribes of Israel to a new relationship with Yahweh their God, which is also found in the promise of the gospel that the spirit of Elijah, the prophet, would restore all things. Now, we see a prophecy of the spirit of Elijah in Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. But in the gospel, it is stated that he would restore all things in Matthew chapter 17, verse 11. And I'm sorry, I may have said Matthew 4. It's Malachi chapter 4. If I said Matthew, I already don't remember what I said. Christ himself, as it is described in Luke chapter 2, while he was yet a child of 12 years, was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. Later, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul asked his readers, For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Christians may indeed have the mind of Christ. That's what they are offered in the gospel. The mind of Christ is to understand and comply with the word of Yahweh God as it is understood through the gospel of Christ. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul explained to them that only in Christ could anyone understand the word of God in the Old Testament. Because unless you're in Christ, there's a veil over the Old Testament. Paul using the veil over Moses' face as an analogy in order to describe that. Much later, writing the Colossians, upon hearing that they had received the gospel of Christ, Paul told them in the opening chapter of his epistle that for this cause we also, since the day we heard it, Do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthily of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Of course, Paul's teachings fully agree with the gospel. And so does the wisdom of Solomon here. Christ himself had told his disciples in John chapter 15. Ye are my friends. If you do whatsoever, I command you. Henceforth, I call you not servants. For the servant knows not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my father, I have made known unto you. Of course the patriarch Abraham was described as being a friend of God in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 in a statement which is not explicit in Genesis or in the other earlier books of our Bibles. Yet the statement is corroborated in the words of Yahweh himself as they are recorded in Isaiah chapter 41. And by the the Apostle James in chapter 2 of his epistle. So if Abraham could be the friend of God for obeying God and also the apostles, it is evident that at least many of the prophets were also friends of God. Although in the Old Testament they were referred to As his servants, not as his friends. Not as his friends. In that passage we just read from the gospel, Christ said, Henceforth I call you not servants, but I have called you friends. So henceforth means from this time on I call you not servants. But the prophets had also kept his commandments as the apostles were told, that they must do if they were to be friends of God. And the word of God was made known both to them and through them. But men who pretend to be able to foretell the future today, or who say things in the name of God which are not already written in the word of God, those men can only be false prophets. Paul had explained in Hebrews chapter 1 that God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And Paul didn't invent that concept in a prophecy of the Messiah in Daniel chapter 9 Part of the purpose of the Messiah, the purpose of the Christ, was to seal up the vision and prophecy. Therefore, we cannot imagine that there will be any other prophets who can justly state, thus saith the Lord, unless they're citing, quoting Christ or the ancient prophets. But the word prophet in the New Testament Has other meanings, such as those who have the gift of interpreting the Word of God, which has already been recorded, or those who have the ability to reveal things kept secret by others or which are not openly known by others. So, in those senses of the meanings of the Word, the wisdom of God can still produce prophets, but they're not going to say, Thus saith the Lord, and tell us what's happening at some point in the future, unless it's already revealed by Christ. Now Solomon warns men who do not seek wisdom. For God loves none but him that dwells with wisdom. God loves none except a man who dwells with wisdom, or a woman. So Paul of Tarsus had also advised the Colossians in chapter 3, of his epistle and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you also are called in one body and be ye thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom him that dwelleth with wisdom if you keep his word teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. But of course, and as he himself explained in the opening chapters of his first epistle to the Corinthians, Paul rejected worldly wisdom in favor of the wisdom of God found in the scriptures. So Plato and Aristotle had no place in Christian thought and the so-called church fathers who followed them instead of Christ must all be rejected. Solomon continues to describe the beauty of wisdom in verse 29. For she is more beautiful than the sun, and above all the order, or every position, of stars. Being compared with the light, she is found before it in proverbs chapter 8 we read for wisdom is better than rubies and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it likewise in job chapter 28 no mention shall be made of coral or of pearls for the price of wisdom is above rubies here solomon goes even further to illustrate that true wisdom emanates from heaven and therefore Transcends and precedes the creation of God. Of course, the wisdom of God had to precede even light, as He created the heaven and earth before He had proclaimed, Let there be light. And therefore, all the knowledge of God must have existed before He created anything at all. All of the knowledge. And the wisdom of God. Thus, we also read in Jeremiah chapter 10 that He has made the earth by His power. He has established the world by His wisdom and has stretched out the heavens by His discretion or by His understanding, as we read in a nearly identical verse in Jeremiah chapter 51. In other words, the same. Text is repeated in chapter 10 and chapter 51, but that one word is different discretion and understanding. And it is a different Hebrew word, not merely a different translation. But we see that the wisdom of God created everything that is, or by the wisdom of God. So the wisdom had to precede the creation. So Solomon is illustrating the importance of wisdom by saying that wisdom preceded all of these other things. Here Solomon does not reflect the understanding which we believe that we have acquired through the gospel of Christ, and especially that which was recorded by John, that by proclaiming, let there be light in Genesis chapter 1, even before the sun and the stars were created. Yahweh God was actually announcing and foretelling his own presence within his creation. So upon the incarnation of Christ, John declared for him to be the light come into the world. So in that sense, Yahweh God is the light because he is Christ and he also preceded the light. Now Solomon makes an analogy using the coming of night in contrast to the light of wisdom. For after this cometh night, but vice shall not prevail against wisdom. Now, we would translate the first part of the verse to read more literally. For after this the night succeeds, or in other words, This relates to the light mentioned in verse 29 where it is apparent that Solomon meant to describe the light of day and it is followed by the night. In the second clause, but vice shall not prevail against wisdom, the word for vice is kakia, which is moral badness, wickedness, or evil. So after Yahweh created the light, Men turned their backs on it and sinned in darkness. This also evokes words of Paul of Tarsus and may also have helped to serve, have, have helped serve to inspire his own allegory of day and night, which is found in First Thessalonians chapter 4, where he wrote concerning the coming of Christ and his vengeance upon the disobedient. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. In other words, at the darkest hour, we have a sudden dawn. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. As travail upon a woman with child. And they shall not escape. And here's the allegory of which I'm speaking. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others. And, of course, Paul is speaking about an allegorical sleep to fall into sin. But let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So both Solomon and Paul made allegories comparing wickedness to the dark of night and good to the light of day. Now to proceed with Wisdom chapter 8. Wisdom reaches, literally it's she reaches, I guess the translators thought because the chapter broke, they had to repeat the subject once again. Wisdom is still the subject. Wisdom reaches from one end to another, literally that is from end upon end. Wisdom reaches from one end to another mightily and sweetly or kindly does she order or manage all things i loved her and sought her out from my youth i desired to make her my spouse and i was a lover of her beauty Now, a couple of words were not even represented, even with my little additions, were not represented in the translation in the King James Version. So we would translate verse 2 to read, I loved her, and I have sought her out from my youth, even having sought her for a bride, the King James Version actually kind of missed that one, to bring myself, a bride to bring to myself, and I have become a lover of her beauty. Here I have a digression. The apocryphal book of the wisdom of Sirach, or properly, the son of Sirach, Ben Sirach, mentions Ptolemy III Euergetes in its prologue. And he was a king who ruled Macedonian Egypt from about 246 to 222 B.C. In chapter 50 of the work, the author refers to himself as Jesus, the son of Sirach, which in Hebrew would be, or in Greek Hebrew, I should say a Hebrew dialect of Greek, Jesus Ben Sirach, Jesus, the son of Sirach. He refers to himself as Jesus the son of Sirach while in the prologue he had also said that the wisdom was originally written by his grandfather who also had the name Jesus or Jesus and therefore he most likely may have written speaking of the grandfather around the end of the 4th or perhaps the beginning of the 3rd century BC we do not esteem the book to be worthy of canon as there are no indications and no claims that it was inspired by God the writer only tells us that it was the result of his grandfather's personal studies however it is apparently a pious book written by an evidently pious man and gives us insight into the faith as it was held by Judeans in the middle of the intertestamental period, a time about which even Flavius Josephus did not have much knowledge to share. Very little is known of Judea from the time of Nehemiah, Ezra, and the prophet Zechariah and Malachi, so the end of that would be Ezra and Malachi, very little is known of anything in Judea from Ezra and Malachi, the end of the 5th century, or the later half at least, of the 5th century B.C., very little is known until about 160 B.C., or perhaps just a little earlier, and the rise of the Maccabees. The... Hasmonean dynasty, which won liberation from the Greek kings of Syria. In the wisdom of Sirach, there is a wooing of wisdom found in chapter 51, verses 13 to 30, which we will not present here. It also speaks of wisdom as a woman to be coveted. Some commentators argue that the wisdom of Solomon mimicked or copied the idea from that chapter of Sirach. however the truth is very likely to be the opposite this is especially true because in neither work is the wooing of wisdom original of wisdom as a woman for example in proverbs chapter 7 we read my son keep my words and lay up my commandments with thee keep my commandments and live and my law as the apple of thine eye Bind them upon thy fingers, and write them upon the tablet of thine heart. Say unto wisdom, Thou art my sister, and call understanding thy kinswoman, that they may keep thee from the strange woman, and from the stranger which flatters with her words. Then in Proverbs chapter 8, For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. So, long before Sirach, Solomon was depicting wisdom as a woman to be desired, and it is likely that he only imitated himself and built upon that concept where he woos wisdom here. Solomon continues to describe the attributes of wisdom. In that she is conversant, actually that should be, in that she lives together. In that she is conversant with God, she magnifies her nobility. Yeah, the Lord of all things himself loves her. So Solomon depicts wisdom as having a symbiotic relationship with God, as if a woman staying with her husband is more noble than one who does not, and is therefore loved by God. So for that reason, he also says, in verse 4 of Wisdom, chapter 8, for she is privy to the mysteries of the knowledge of God and a lover of his works. Now, interpreting the Greek word, moustis, I would pronounce that. Mystis, if you go to a college and, and they teach you Greek, I guess it would be mystis, but to me it would be If we interpret that word as a mystagogue, which is a teacher of mysteries, rather than as a mystic, as Greek writers had used the word in either way, then we would translate this verse to read, for she is a teacher of the mysteries, of the knowledge of God, and a chooser of his works. Therefore, without the wisdom which is of God, one cannot understand the mysteries of God, because there is no other teacher. To choose the works of God is to do the things which he has asked men to do. If we do not choose his works, then we are found departing from the way and traveling the road to evil. In Proverbs chapter 16, we read, Commit thy works unto Yahweh, and thy thoughts shall be established. Paul of Tarsus spoke in a similar manner in chapter 3 of his second epistle to Timothy, where he was speaking of the wisdom acquired from Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Referring again to the passage in Proverbs chapter 16, the establishment of one's thoughts is another way to express the concept described by a Greek word, sophrosune, which we will discuss at length shortly. Yahshua Christ being the Word made flesh, and therefore being the incarnate wisdom of God. Paul of Tarsus explained in chapter 2 of his first epistle to the Corinthians that the mysteries of God are revealed in the Gospel of Christ, where he wrote, Howbeit we speak wisdom, Contrary to the worldly wisdom, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that cometh to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world, before the founding of the society, unto our glory which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye is not seen, nor has ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yeah, the deep things of God. Then further on in chapter 4 of that epistle, he wrote, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Stewards of the gospel of Christ. Later, in Ephesians chapter 1, power of Christ, that wherein he has abounded toward us all in wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure which he has purposed in himself and later among other things in ephesians chapter 3 unto me who am less than the least of all saints which is not the apostles themselves but every single one of the children of israel unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given that i should preach among the nations the unsearchable riches of christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hidden in god who created all things by jesus christ to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Now, some so-called churches teach that there are still mysteries of the faith, but Paul of Tarsus taught that they were all already revealed in Christ to his church, to his people, the body of those undefiled people for whom he had come, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Solomon continues, by speaking of the value of wisdom. If riches be a possession to be desired in this life, what is richer than wisdom that works all things? And if prudence works, who of all that, who of all that are, who of all that are, who out of everyone that exists, is a more cunning workman than she, referring to wisdom. The language of this passage is archaic and a little difficult to follow, but the meaning was close enough to the Greek that I was not compelled to translate it anew. Solomon speaks of prudence as if it is also a quality of wisdom. This was also explained in... Proverbs chapter 8, I, in verse 12, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. They're not two sisters. They're two concepts that go hand in hand. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge of witty inventions. Likewise, from Ephesians chapter 1. And I think that witty inventions off the top of my head is clever sayings or witty devices, clever devices. So likewise, from Ephesians chapter 1, speaking of Christ, Paul wrote that he has abounded toward us all in wisdom and prudence. So wisdom and prudence are portrayed by both Solomon and Paul as going hand in hand. Prudence is caution and judgment. And it is also advised in the first chapter of the Epistle of James, where he wrote, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, meaning don't make your mind up immediately or before you have heard the entire case, slow to speak and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. An exhortation for prudence is also evident in the 103rd Psalm. Yahweh is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. Likewise, in the 145th Psalm, a very similar saying, Yahweh is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy. So we read in Proverbs chapter 14, He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding, but he that is hasty of spirit exalts folly. In Proverbs chapter 15, we see an exhortation for both prudence and fortitude. A wrathful man stirs up strife, but he that is slow to anger appeases strife. The way of the slothful man is a hedge of thorns. If you think about that, that's actually an exhortation on behalf of fortitude. Because sloth is one characteristic which is an opposite of fortitude, which is antithetical to fortitude. The way of the slothful man is as a hedge of thorns, but the way of the righteous is made plain. Now Solomon refers to to a man that loves righteousness, which would also be a necessity if he sought wisdom. And if a man loves righteousness, her labors are virtues, for she teaches temperance and prudence, justice and fortitude. Now, that word is really andria, which is manliness. Temperance and prudence, justice and fortitude, which are such things as men can have nothing more profitable in their life. And if we would translate this entire verse to read, And if anyone loves righteousness, her labors are virtues. For temperance and prudence she teaches, righteousness and manliness, of which things nothing is more useful in the life of men. There aren't too many differences there, but I thought the differences were important enough to offer a various translation, but mostly because in my written notes, I'm also providing the actual Greek of each phrase that I translate. In the Greek writers, Andrea was often used in contradistinction to another word, to dylia, which is timidity or cowardice. The King James Version has fortitude instead of manliness. Now, fortitude is basically courage in the face of adversity. And while that should certainly be a quality of manliness, the translation obscures part of the meaning. The word andrius and related terms describe what is masculine, while gunahikaius, gunahikaius, as I would pronounce it, may be as they would pronounce it at some faraway university. Gunechias and related terms describe what is feminine. Now, the Greeks did use andria to describe brave deeds, but it's a masculine quality expressed with a word that's a derivative of andrias, which means masculine or manly there is an article titled, What is the Original Language of the Wisdom of Solomon? Which was written by a devil. I'm sorry. No, I'm not. Which was written by a Jewish teacher at a rabbinical school in Breslau, Germany, who had also worked at Christian universities, at large Christian universities in Germany. Throughout his career, And his name was Jacob Frudenthal, and I believe it should be pronounced Fradenthal. The article was published in the Jewish Quarterly Review in 1891. In spite of the narrow title, the author sought to portray much of the Septuagint itself as being defective, as he called it. On page 725, he assailed the story of Susanna as being originally authored in Greek, thereby attempting to discredit it as scripture. But his, he was dishonest in his proof of that assertion since he was citing the Greek translation by Theodosian and not the version found in the Septuagint. And that's totally dishonest, because everybody knows that Theodosian's version followed the Septuagint by as close to 400 years. So he was citing the Greek translation found by Theodosian and attributing his examples to the Septuagint, which is patently dishonest. So he exploited certain wordplay, which exists in the version of Theodosian, who was a Hellenistic Jew, in order to make his case. But the wordplay does not exist in the original version of Susanna found in the Septuagint. The very fact that there are such diverse versions of Susanna that fact alone serves to prove that there was a Hebrew original. But the Jew, Fraudenthal, instead had chose to lie. And he lied. He blatantly lied about Susanna. On page 728 of his article, as it appeared in a much larger publication, it appeared in a quarterly journal, which is many pages, right? But this article was only a few. In reference to this passage in Wisdom chapter 8, this passage which we just read from verse 7, Flodenthal wrote, Here we have the four cardinal virtues, four, I'm sorry, I'm tripping over myself. Here we have the four cardinal virtues of Plato side by side. And then he asks a question. He says, what reading in the Hebrew text could have moved the Greek translator to this collocation? And, of course, his argument is that wisdom was originally written in Greek, and therefore it couldn't have been written by Solomon, and it was really written by some Hellenistic Jew, which to me is all bullshit. Then, after addressing a Christian apologist for wisdom, he wrote, another scholar who who defended wisdom, he wrote, In point of fact, sofrosune, which is the first of the virtues that wisdom teaches, as the four are mentioned here, sofrosune is a notion for which no equivalent exists in Hebrew or Neo-Hebraic speech. As if there really were such a thing. He actually means Yiddish. He's actually calling Yiddish Neo-Hebraic speech, which is another lie. And he says, it is absent, meaning sofrosune. It is absent from the 70, which is the Septuagint. He just refers to it as the seventy. And the 70 to him are the traditional 70 translators. It is absent from the 70 and together with other ethical ideas, first makes its appearance in purely Hellenistic writings, in the second book of the Maccabees, in the letter of Aristeus, and in the New Testament, from which it follows that in the wisdom. The use of sophrosune betrays a Greek author and not a translator. Then he says, moreover, the 70, as I showed on a previous occasion, were not familiar with the meaning of simple philosophical terms. And similarly, there is no work emanating from ancient Hebrew or Aramaean circles which contains more than some isolated philosophical expressions which had forced their way into popular use. And this Jew is really full of it. He's really lying. As we illustrated throughout our answers to other and similar criticisms of wisdom, it is not true that Sophrosune makes its appearance in purely Hellenistic writings. Nor does the concept originate with Plato, which is ridiculous, being one of his cardinal virtues. The word sophrosune appears in Homer's Odyssey and in the works of other poets who wrote long before Plato. So simply because the Septuagint translators had no other occasion to use the word, does not mean that, therefore, it could not have appeared in an early translation of wisdom. It does not mean that. There are many words in the Septuagint which appear only once, and again, only in Hellenistic writings. I'll give an example. The word agconiskus, an adjective which describes something which is bent or curved occurs only in Exodus chapter 26, verse 17, and in the writings of an obscure Greek engineer of the first century named Hero of Alexandria. So does that prove that the Exodus was not written in Greek until after the first century? Yet the word Sophrosune appears often from the writings of the earliest Greeks in a poetic form. The form is slightly different because it's poetic, not because it has a different meaning, not because it's a different word, but instead of so-fro-sune, the poets wrote seaphrosune, sa omicron the short O, rather than S-Omega, the long O. But Plato was not the author of Virtue, or of the virtue of discretion, or soundness of mind, which is how sophrosune is defined. The Greeks originally formed the word sophrosune, and the related words from two words, sos, which is sound, whole, or safe, and phrain, which is the mind. So from those two words, sos, phrain, they formed sophrosune. In the Hebrew Old Testament, there is a phrase, uprightness of heart, which is basically equivalent in its meaning to the Greek word sophrosune. That Hebrew word for heart, lebab, is often translated as mind. Since sophrosune was formed from two Greek words, we do not need to see a single Hebrew word which has an equivalent meaning. And the argument of Fraudenthal is based on a fraudulent premise. And yes, I'm purposely mispronouncing his name. So where he said, in point of fact, so is a notion for which no equivalent exists in Hebrew, he was lying because the notion is expressed in the phrase uprightness of heart, or it may be translated uprightness of mind. The Romans also used a phrase rather than a compound word to express the same concept, which is sanus mentis, although they had other terms which expressed particular aspects of its meaning, just like the Hebrews. So did the Hebrews. Furthermore, in translations more modern than the King James Version, this is one of those words that the Hebrews had which expressed aspects of what the Greeks called sofrasune. In translations more modern than the King James Version, the Hebrew word mezima, Strong's number 4209, is often translated as discretion on five occasions in the Proverbs, in the North American Standard Bible. And that is how, in the New Testament and other literature, Sophrosune is often translated. So, Fraudenthal's arguments fail in many ways. Qualities, <clears throat> such as temperance, prudence, righteousness, and manliness, or qualities such as Discretion, or moderation, as Sophrosune is also translated, are indeed expressed positively throughout Scripture. And there are innumerable examples. Often these concepts are represented in models, such as where the drunkenness of Noah and the sin to which it led is an example that moderation in drinking is a virtue. But often they are expressed where only contrary examples are condemned. One such example is in the law, which concerns men eligible to go to war. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, where we read, What man is there that is fearful and faint-hearted?" That word, that Greek word, dylia, would fit here. Let him go and return unto his house lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his heart. So there we realize that for men, manliness, andria, manliness is both a virtue and a necessity. It is a necessity to the point where Paul of Tarsus warns that men who are effeminate, which is literally men who are soft, shall not inherit the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Plato may have described four so-called cardinal virtues, but none of these are unknown in Scripture, and Solomon certainly was not copying from Plato. Discretion, moderation, uprightness of heart, justice or righteousness, and manliness are taught throughout Scripture long before Plato ever lived. The Septuagint translators seem to have usually rendered the phrase uprightness of heart with greek words that literally mean straightness of heart but simply because the translators so often chose such a literal rendering does not mean that they would have not understood the concept related in the word sophrosune the phrase may be straightness of mind and yes i've been typing a lot tonight as I talk, because as usual, I'm editing my notes as I proceed, and tonight I have a whole lot of edits, or additions, I should say, that I want to make part of the text. We see a similar phrase, integrity of heart, where Yahweh God addresses Solomon himself in 1 Kings chapter 9. And if thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked, in integrity of heart, now don't tell me that that is not the same concept as Sophrosune, in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded thee, and will keep my statutes and my judgments, then. I will establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever, as I promised to David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. In Scripture, the only valid sophrosune, or discretion, is discretion or sound-mindedness. Is discretion, or sound-mindedness, displayed by obeying God and the discretion of Plato was something else entirely. So, these Jews, they can't get rid of the wisdom of Solomon with that bullshit. With craft and cunning, which is what they've tried to do. It don't work. Returning to Wisdom chapter 8. If a man desires much experience, this is verse 8, she, meaning wisdom, She knoweth things of old, and conjectures aright what is to come. She knows the subtleties of speech, and can expound dark sentences. She foresees signs and wonders, and the events of seasons and times. The word translated as much experience is palupyria a compound word from polis, which is many, and pyra pyria, which are trials, which is a trial. Polupyria can mean many trials rather than much experience. It can mean many attempts or many undertakings or many experiments among other possible definitions while the word appears as early as in the work of thucydides the history of the peloponnesian wars in greek scripture it only appears elsewhere once in the wisdom of serac the much experience mentioned here is a reference to the wisdom which is gained by experience And Solomon is attributing it to the wisdom of God, which in turn is found in Scripture. If men would learn that wisdom, as Solomon depicts it as a woman here, then they would have the benefit of her experience without necessarily having to suffer similar trials for themselves. So it's a shortcut, learning the word of God at a young age and keeping it. In your heart is a shortcut to a better walk through life. Word it says that wisdom conjectures aright what is to come. It means that wisdom portrays in a likeness or in a comparison what things are to come. The words rendered as subtleties of speech may mean. That they mean literally turnings of words, so I would agree with the translation subtleties of speech, and by dark sentences, riddles are meant the same word I would pronounce a or perhaps it should be pronounced enigma, the same word which is the source of our English word enigma, is the, in the plural here, is riddles, and it's also riddles in the plural in 1 Kings chapter 10, but from the Hebrew, hard questions in the King James Version, where the Queen of Sheba sought to try the wisdom of Solomon by such inquiries. In the opening verses of Proverbs chapter 1, we read the purpose of the book in part five. I'm sorry, in part, in verse five. I'm trying to look at the clock and look at how much more I have this evening. And I'm sorry, I'm distracting myself. So in the opening verses of Proverbs chapter one, we we read the purpose of the book in, in part from verse five. A wise man will hear, and will increase learning. And a man of understanding shall attain to wise counsels, to understand a proverb and the interpretation, the words of the wise and their dark sayings. In other words, wise men often speak in allegories or in language hard to understand. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom. And instruction. Now that Solomon has described the beauty of wisdom, he further expresses his, his resolve to pursue it. Therefore, in verse 9, Therefore I purpose to take her to me to live with me, knowing that she would be a counselor of good things and a comfort in cares and grief, as we had said earlier. That word, sophrosune is often translated as discretion, and so is the Hebrew word mezima. One place where mezima appears in the Proverbs of Solomon is in chapter 2, where it says, Discretion shall preserve thee. Understanding shall keep thee. But in the corresponding passage in the Septuagint, it was translated from Hebrew as bule kale, or good counsel. And with this in mind, this connection between good counsel, mezima, or discretion, and Soprosune, which is often translated as discretion, because this Fraudenthal tried to claim that this concept isn't found in the Old Testament, and he was just lying. With this in mind, we read in Wisdom chapter 8, I, Wisdom, have dwelt with counsel and knowledge, and have called upon understanding the fear of Yahweh, or of the Lord. I'm, I'm reading from from the King James Version, The fear of the Lord hates unrighteousness and insolence and pride and the ways of wicked men, and I hate the perverse ways of bad men. Counsel and safety are mine, prudence is mine, and strength is mine. By me, kings reign and princes decree justice. And this same message has certainly been echoed persistently and in many different ways throughout this wisdom of Solomon. Right away, he opens with the description of the just man being persecuted and slain by insolent, proud, and wicked men. His wisdom is given for the benefit of the future kings of Israel. And it includes counsel or, or, or counsel or as we've just seen, mazima or discretion and safety and prudence and strength and decrees of justice. This same message has been certainly been echoed persistently throughout this book of wisdom that we see expressed in proverbs and in many different ways. So likewise, once again here, we see the concept which the Greeks expressed as sophosune clearly expressed in Proverbs chapter 9 as Brenton had translated it from the Greek of the Septuagint and he wrote, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the counsel of saints is understanding for to know the law is the character of a sound Mind the Sanus Mentis of the Romans, which is the phrase equivalent to the Sophrosune of the Greeks. Only a Jew would invent lies in order to try to discredit the wisdom of Solomon. But now the Jew is dead, and the wisdom of Solomon lives on. And that will actually be the subject of the next portion of our commentary on this chapter, which is the reward of wisdom, or which discusses the reward of wisdom. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night.